Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Indiana Lawyer Managing Editor and your host. Thanks for joining us. We've got a lot of ground to cover with today's headlines, plus a great interview with former Indiana Chief Justice Randall Shepard. So let's just dive right in. Today is Wednesday, October 5th, 2022, and these are your headlines. To start us off, here's Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe with yet another update on changes coming to Indiana's appellate bench. Katie? After a full day of interviews in Indianapolis on September 27th, the Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission has chosen six finalists to advance to the next round of interviews in their bids to fill an opening on the Court of Appeals of Indiana. The vacancy is left by Justice Derek Moulter, who joined the Indiana Supreme Court last month. The six selected finalists invited to participate in a second round of interviews include Hamilton Circuit Judge Paul Felix, Marion Superior Judge Ryan Gardner, Carol Joven of Williams and Pyatt LLC, Grant Superior Judge Dana Kenworthy, Marion Superior Judge Mark Rothenberg, and Cass Superior Court Judge Lisa Swaim. Here's a look at what those finalists told the JNC during their initial interviews. During the interviews, Judge Felix said that following years of moving from school to school and watching abuse in his childhood home, his grandfather encouraged him to be a lawyer. When I say what? It's because I was able to find mentors, tutors, role models that, that allowed me to move in that direction so that helped me succeed. When asked about the biggest challenges facing the judiciary, Judge Gardner noted that diversity is still lacking on the Court of Appeals. Our trial courts are starting to look more like the community that we serve, but our appellate courts do not. Uh, and I think that our, our judiciary is better and it reflects the community that it serves. Among the reasons why Joven says she would be a good fit for the Court of Appeals position is the diversity of her legal experience. I would bring the perspective of a lawyer who has practiced in complex civil litigation, uh, representing the clients in a wide variety of areas of the law, uh, including both trials and appeals. When asked what she admires about the people who often face tragedy in her courtroom, Judge Kenworthy said she believes there's some good in every human. I think a lot of times people in the courtroom don't see that in themselves. And when they are able to recognize that, that's really need to watch. Judge Rothenberg, who has presided over hundreds of jury trials and major felony cases in his career, says it's important to have varied experience to join the appellate court. I'm proud of the work I've done as a trial judge, and I think it goes hand in hand with being to analyze a case on the appellate since her last interview for an appellate vacancy, Judge Swaim has encountered health problems that she says brought her close to death. And when you look at that, it changes how you feel about really everything. And I came out of it knowing that if I had another opportunity, I would absolutely try it. The second round of interviews is set for October 12th. Back to you, Jordan. As she always does, Katie will be following the search for a new COA judge to the final selection. So check back with our website for her periodic updates. Moving to the trial courts, Indiana lawyer editor Olivia Covington was in the courtroom late last month when Brandon Kaiser stood trial for shooting two Indiana judges back in May 2019. Kaiser was ultimately convicted of multiple counts of felony battery plus a misdemeanor charge of carrying a handgun without a license in the shooting that involved Clark County Judge Bradley Jacobs, Clark County Magistrate Judge William Dawkins, 
and former judges Andrew Adams and Sabrina Bell. All four judges took the stand during the trial in Marion County, and Olivia was there to hear each of them publicly recount the events of that night for the first time. Unfortunately, Olivia lost her voice, so she can't give you the details directly, but she gave me the scoop to share. All four judges testified to drinking in the hours leading up to the shooting, so aside from Dawkins, their memories of that night are very limited. In fact, Judge Jacobs, who was shot twice, remembers leaving a bar and then waking up on the ground after being shot, but nothing in between, including the fight in the downtown Indianapolis White Castle parking lot that culminated in the shooting. Adams was also shot, but both he and Bell claimed to have no memory of what actually caused the brawl. Dawkins was inside the White Castle restaurant and only came outside once the fight had begun. Surveillance video from the parking lot shows two groups of men charging at each other, one group including Adams and Jacobs, and the other including Kaiser and his nephew, Alfredo Vasquez. Adams and Vasquez are seen punching and wrestling with each other, while Jacobs pins down Kaiser. When Kaiser eventually gets up, he is seen shooting Adams once in the abdomen, then Jacobs twice in the chest and abdomen area. The judges were frequently emotional as they testified. Dawkins recalled Jacobs telling him that he didn't think he would survive his wounds, and Jacobs recalled a White Castle employee imploring him to fight to stay alive for his three daughters. Both Adams and Jacobs raised their shirts in open court to show the jurors their remaining scars from the shooting three years ago. Kaiser's case was based on a theory of self-defense. Olivia wasn't in the courtroom when he took the stand, but he has consistently argued since the shooting happened that the judges were the initial aggressors. Vasquez, who testified for the prosecution, claimed Adams and Jacobs had been yelling profanities after Kaiser whistled at Bell. But Bell testified that the two groups had initially began speaking to each other in a, quote, jovial manner. The surveillance footage does not have any audio, so we may never know exactly what was said around 3 a.m. on May 1, 2019, before the fight began. But what is clear is that the shooting has a wide-ranging impact, with Adams, Bell, and Jacobs each being disciplined by the Indiana Supreme Court. Adams losing his re-election bid and pleading guilty to a misdemeanor, Vasquez also pleading to a misdemeanor, and now Kaiser facing sentencing on multiple felonies. Olivia will continue to follow this case, including Kaiser's sentencing later this month. So check back with us for updates. You can check out her detailed coverage of the judge's testimony on our website, plus testimony from other witnesses in our most recent print issue. Also happening in Indiana's trial courts are the continued challenges to Indiana's new abortion ban, which, at least the time I recorded this, is preliminary enjoined. Late last month, a special judge in the Monroe Circuit Court issued the injunction against Senate Enrolled Act 1, which banned abortion in the state with limited exceptions. The judge, Kelsey Hanlon of Owen County, ruled that the plaintiffs were likely to succeed on the argument that the ban violates women's right to privacy guaranteed under the Indiana Constitution. Although she rejected the argument, the ban also violated the state constitution's guarantee of equal privileges and immunities. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita has appealed the injunction, seeking emergency transfer to the Indiana Supreme Court. He also asked the Court of Appeals of Indiana for an emergency stay of the injunction, but that request was denied. Even so, the Court of Appeals appears to be moving quickly, setting a deadline early this month for the plaintiffs, which include Planned Parenthood, to respond to the appeal. Meanwhile, in Marion County, a second lawsuit challenging SEA-1 is set for a hearing on October 14th. That lawsuit opposes the abortion ban under Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, with the plaintiffs arguing that many religions, including portions of Christianity, support the right to abortion. Clearly, Indiana's abortion landscape is changing, and fast. 
The best place for the most up-to-date news is our website, so make sure you're checking in with theindianalawyer.com regularly. Shifting gears, we have results to report from the July 2022 Indiana Bar Exam. The overall pass rate for this summer's exam was 68%, just one percentage point down from July 2021, the first year Indiana administered the Uniform Bar Exam. First-time test takers in July 2022 passed at a pass rate of 76%, while repeat test takers passed at a rate of 28%. Those numbers are very similar to July 2021, when 78% of first-time takers and 27% of repeat test takers passed, respectively. The admission ceremony for successful July 2022 applicants will be held on October 31st in Indianapolis. You can read the full list of test takers who passed the July exam on our website. In other law student-related news, an attorney licensed in Indiana is the lone plaintiff in a federal lawsuit challenging the Biden administration's plan to forgive billions of dollars in student loan debt. Frank Garrison filed the lawsuit in the Indiana Southern District Court, where he is arguing that the student loan forgiveness plan will result in himself and borrowers in at least six states incurring additional financial obligations because their canceled debt will be counted as income and taxed by their states. The complaint doesn't share how much Garrison owes in student loan debt, but he claims he paid for college with federal student loans and Pell Grants, making him eligible for $20,000 worth of student loan forgiveness. However, because Indiana plans to count the loan forgiveness as taxable income, Garrison says he'll face a state income tax liability of more than $1,000 for the year 2022. According to Garrison's complaint, quote, such an economically and politically significant action requires a, quote, clear authorization by Congress, end quote. He's seeking a declaratory judgment and permanent injunction against the loan forgiveness plan. Garrison is represented in the lawsuit by the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is also his employer, according to the Indiana Role of Attorneys. Garrison names the U.S. Department of Education and Education Secretary Miguel Cardona as defendants. To wrap up today's headlines, I'm going to send it back to Katie to tell you about a story she's working on for the next print issue of Indiana Lawyer. Legal aid is critical for many Hoosiers who find themselves in need of guidance or support in the legal-related matters of their lives. That's where pro bono assistance can often save the day. On August 25th and 26th, the Indiana Bar Foundation and Indiana Coalition for Court Access hosted a two-day pro bono retreat focused on building relationships and connections as a statewide pro bono community. Specifically, pro bono leaders focused on how to expand the abilities of Indiana's pro bono system to provide services throughout the state, improve collaboration, and expand pro bono services for housing stability issues. On the heels of the retreat, several Indiana pro bono organizations are now coming together to create a strategic plan to more efficiently connect attorneys with pro bono opportunities statewide. Check out Indiana Lawyer's October 12th issue to learn more about the strategic plan on how pro bono leaders hope to make it as easy as possible for attorneys to get connected with pro bono opportunities. Thanks, Katie. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, you can visit theindianalawyer.com for more on these stories and more. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my conversation with former Indiana Chief Justice Randall Shepard. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. 
To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Court of Appeals of Indiana Senior Judge and former Indiana Chief Justice Randall Shepard in studio with us today. Justice Shepard, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be around. Justice Shepard was appointed to the Indiana Supreme Court by Governor Robert D. Orr in 1985 at the age of 38. He became Chief Justice of Indiana in March 1987 and retired from the court in March 2012, at which point he was the longest serving Chief Justice in Indiana history and the senior Chief Justice in the country's state Supreme Court. Prior to his appointment, um, Shepard was judge of the Vanderburg Superior Court from 1980. He earlier served as executive assistant to Mayor Russell Lloyd of Evansville and a special assistant to the Undersecretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Since leaving the Supreme Court, Justice Shepard has served as a senior judge in the Court of Appeals of Indiana. Justice Shepard, I know it's been uh, a few years, but I always like to ask this question. Why did you decide to pursue a career in the law? Uh, Just about everybody I knew in college either went to business school, medical school, or law school. (laughs) And of those, uh, the one that I felt I could be, uh, I could probably do best, uh, uh, I I, I couldn't have gone to medical school. uh, and uh, business school, my my father was a superb businessman. I knew I'd end up in the uh, looking like a, a, a an also ran. So uh, law and law because it uh, in, it brings you to be involved in a lot of public affairs. I think that might have been one of the most important reasons. Did you think that you'd be a judge? I mean, was that always no, kind of a goal? Never imagined to be a judge. Um, always expected I would I would be a pra- practicing lawyer, and and I did for a while, but. Um, and it, it, uh, I got talked into applying for a judgeship by one of my best friends on a, on a Friday night, <laughs> and there you are. What does your schedule look like these days? I'm in the uh, Court of Appeals uh, offices a couple of days a week uh, working on cases, um, um, frequently there for uh, meetings of what is called the motions panel, so that the uh, a uh, group of three of uh, judges, both regular full judges and senior judges, will sit and decide things like uh, rec- uh, motions to dismiss or uh, motions for another post-conviction relief opportunity. And uh, that's uh, so those are the principal things I do uh, at the court. And I occasionally get asked uh, to do special assignments uh, at the uh, IU McKinney School of Law, where I'm a visiting professor, I think, or visiting lecturer. I can't remember. One thing I, you know, I want to touch on, and I'm going to be attending tonight, as, as are you, uh, Indiana Conference for Legal Education Opportunity, uh, which our listeners will know as iCleo turns 25 this year. Tell us a little bit about your role in helping the program kind of take off. In the mid-90s, there, there had been a federal program called Clio. And uh, in the mid-90s, the uh, Congress uh, cut it completely from the budget. And um, this seemed like a a really bad decision. It didn't save the federal government very much money, but the role that the existing national CLIO had done was to give a lot of opportunity and assistance to minority students who might not have gotten to be lawyers uh, without it. So I asked the legislature in my State of the Judiciary address to create an Indiana CLIO, and, uh, and they reacted to that quite well, um, I'm happy to say, and have ever since. The, uh, the, the Indiana story on building a bigger cadre of uh, minority and, and in, uh, people who are disadvantaged another way, people who are disabled in one way or another are sometimes admitted to Clio because it'll help them get across the finish line. And um, 
the uh, Indiana has now over that period of time. This is we're not we're not spending federal grant money on this. Our legislature actually has appropriated uh, somewhere on the order of twenty million dollars to help these uh, young uh, college grads uh, get in and get through law school. Uh, you have to be admitted. You have to have a chance to actually go to law school. Um, you have to be admitted by one of the schools in Indiana before you can uh, get into Clio. So uh, the uh, I'm, it's it's a wonderful thing that says something about Indiana. The vote on creating this program back in the mid '90s was, as best I recall, ninety-one to seven in the House of Representatives and forty-nine to nothing in the uh, in the Indiana Senate, where uh, Senator Bob Garton uh, was one of our great supporters. He was then the pro tem in the Senate, and uh, since then. Um, it has uh, continued to happily continued to thrive. Uh, it is it is overseen by the Indiana Supreme Court. They're the ones who um, have uh, the, the staff people who make this happen, and they're the ones who who give the the assistance that ICLEO represents, which I'll describe if you want me to. But, yeah, uh, yeah but, absolutely. Well, it, basically, f- four elements. Um, one is uh, if you're admitted to ICLEO, you get to attend a, a summer institute. It's residential. You've got to go there and do it full time. And it usually lasts five or six weeks. And the idea there is to give you a head start on what law school is really going to be like. So law, uh, uh, full-time law professors and law staff uh, at, and all, th- all three of our present schools have been the place where this can, can and does occur. This year it was at uh, Notre Dame. Uh, you get some initial instruction in the substance of law, but you also learn a lot about how law school actually works and what's going to be expected of you. It's a kind of a head start for lawyers. Um, you then uh, receive uh, certain levels of uh, financial assistance, actual assistance to help you pay the bills uh, going to law school over your three years. Um, you also uh, have uh, an, an accelerated chance for summer employment in law-related things. The Indiana Court of Appeals, for example, has a summer iCLEO program that uh, hires people out of that program to come and work inside the court and get uh, firsthand experience along those lines. And then finally, when the moment of truth comes and you're ready for the bar exam, uh, they'll help uh, pay for the cost of the preparatory course that most people take before the exam itself. So you get those four things that in various ways uh, help prepare people to uh, become lawyers. Yeah, well, you know, what does the future of iCleo, you know, to you, what do you, what do you kind of see it turning into um, down the road? Uh, well, in many ways, you could say more of the same. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's doing what needs to be done. Uh, you know, there've been um, historically a shortage of minority lawyers. Uh, in this 25 years, Indiana has roughly doubled the number of minority lawyers who are practicing in the state. And the um, one of the amazing things is the variety of ways or variety of career options that uh, these graduates have taken. There have been almost 700, by the way, in this period of time. And um, there are, uh, I, I've, I haven't seen a recent, I saw a fairly recent list. It, it was really uplifting because people were doing everything from deputy prosecutors to sole practitioners to big law firm partners, public defenders, uh, sole practitioners, if I didn't say that. And you just see 
this amazing variety of ways in which iCleo graduates have have built careers, and um, uh, it it was it was uplifting to see the the many ways in which they. Uh, some of the, we've got some judges who were iCleo uh, graduates. And I say hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, kind of building off that, you've been involved in a lot of different initiatives over the years with the judiciary. Um, what are some others that you feel like have made a lasting impact? One that has made quite a difference is uh, um, so long ago it's almost forgotten. But uh, in the in the 1980s, when I uh, got appointed by Governor Orr, uh, the Indiana Constitution said that uh, if any criminal defendant got a penalty of more than 10 years that case would skip the court of appeals and go straight from the trial court to the court to the supreme court and as the crime rate went up and the penalties went up uh, the backlog at the supreme court went up they were almost 2 years behind uh, even though they were as individuals they were turning out something like a, a 100 opinions a year each so what had to happen, uh, and what that meant, the, the meaning of that was that they didn't have much time to do other things that are valuable and that you would hope a Supreme Court would be involved in. One was civil litigation. If you had an appeal in a civil case, like a business dispute, uh, your chances of getting your case to the Indiana Supreme Court were pretty small. Uh, the first year, Justice Brent Dixon, who came about the same time as I did, the first year we were there, uh, of the cases that the Indiana Supreme Court decided, 93% were criminal appeals. And that was considered low. So that all the people who had family disputes, uh, business disputes, accidents, uh, just got shut out. And that was unfair to the, most, the largest part of the population, didn't have the chance. The other thing that the court had very little time for was court reform and projects just like iCleo, that because they were, they were so overwhelmed. So um, in, in the election of 1988, there was a, and the legislature agreed that that was, a, that was an issue. In the election of 1988, there was a constitutional amendment on the ballot to change that 10 years to 50 years. And that wasn't the easiest thing. You couldn't go campaigning at a county fair and, and uh, approach a, uh, uh, a, a, a fair goer and say, could I, could I talk to you about the appellate jurisdiction of the Indiana Supreme Court? And <laughs> you just weren't going to get anywhere on that. Um, so, so that took a lot of work, to, uh, uh, talking to newspapers uh, uh, and civic groups about what this was all about and why a, a yes vote was so important to Indiana. Um, now, as I say, that was 1988. That was almost a third of a century ago. Uh, but they voted yes. The public voted yes. So that has allowed the, uh, the, the court to do civil litigation. Today, instead of 7%, which it was that year, it's something like uh, 40%. And um, in the, um, or, or sometimes higher than that. And the turnaround time is vastly improved. So you don't sit forever waiting for an answer in your case. Obviously, court technology a lot changed while you were, um, you know, on the Supreme Court. So, um, what are some of those initiatives that you've just seen evolve and, and you know, pre help prepare, you know, uh, the judiciary and the courts just to be able to get where we are today and, and leading up to the pandemic, even? <laughs> well, the name Frank Sullivan is the first important thing here. Justice Sullivan, now Professor Sullivan at IU McKinney, 
is the one who really led that charge. And it, it's pretty complicated. You know, you, it, 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 when I was a trial judge, if you, if you were sentencing somebody for drunk driving, one of the things you'd like to know is, have, has this person ever been a drunk driver before or ever been arrested for drunk driving? And the way we found that out was that our court staff would call the clerk's offices on the telephone in the surrounding counties and say, does the name John Jones uh, show up in your records? You know, it was uh, pretty much the same way it had been done since before I was born. And uh, now uh, now there are all kinds of things. I, I heard of, I thought of one just the other day. This was a, a, one of the, um, uh, not the great wonderful odyssey result um, um, was uh, a system to allow people to sign up for for marriage licenses, you had to go down and sign your name and get bef- uh, pay the fee before you were in, in, in business. But um, that was very helpful to clerks, for heaven's sakes, and uh, and easier, I think, for the uh, for, for people who wanted to get married. But but in a whole host of ways, uh, the chance to um, enter data to uh, now discussion about serving process electronically in certain instances. Um, was an enormous task because you had, um, you know, 92 counties. They weren't. They didn't have 92 different ways of doing this because there were some people who'd hired the same contractor as the guys next door. Sure. But uh, there were a lot of them that uh, a lot of different ways and and getting getting transferred from whatever you were doing yesterday to what to to the Odyssey system that now uh, works so well to, took a little doing a little hands on effort. And and that that too is an example of you know it, it, to do something like that you really had to have leadership from the top uh, and a committee from the top. So court of appeals judges and members of the Supreme Court. Uh, once the appeal system got put in in a rational uh, spot, uh, then had the interest and the energy, particularly the time, to uh, give leadership to those kinds of efforts. Has your perspective on the Indiana judiciary uh, changed at all since you've become a senior judge? Hmm. I really thought about that. Um, I think one of the long-term changes that has made so much difference is that there was a tendency uh, 30 years ago for the Indiana court system to work as a series of silos. Not necessarily bad, but not as good as it could be, and it, it is much more. It's 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 uh, changed uh, away from that in in two ways. Um, first, the it's it's much more common that local courts join together and and make decisions about uh, how it's going to work in this county courthouse collectively, so that you don't have to worry about whether there's one set of filing rules or postponement rules in the circuit court and another one in superior one and yet another system in superior two that's bad enough if you uh, if you live in that county but if you live uh, next door to learn all those in fact you used to have the one of the requirements was in every courthouse you had to post uh, on a wall somewhere visibly uh, these kinds of questions uh, so that people who, who who didn't practice there regularly could read them on a piece of paper tacked to the tacked to the bulletin board. So there's a lot more collaboration in county courthouses that make a difference. And, and then in a somewhat similar way, a lot more effort to, to make changes uh, collaboratively statewide. Uh, 
and the, the Supreme Court frequently provides staff and the Indiana Judicial Conference, all judges in Indiana, work uh, collectively on committees that approach bail, for example, a ma major issue these days in the news in Indiana some years ago uh, had an assigned uh, a committee assigned what what should the bail system look like what sort of data should it rely on is is uh, terribly important and uh, I I I think most of the time the current system for bail in Indiana has worked pretty well so that's an those are examples of things that you're not stuck in silos anymore if you got a problem somebody can walk in the door uh, and I'd have this happen occasionally. Somebody walk in the door and say, "You know what we really need is X." Uh, and I'd say, "Boy, that sounds right." Uh, well, and then she would say, "Well, and here's how it ought to work." And I say, "Wait a minute. Why don't you go put X together, get a committee, and um, if, if anybody gets in your way, tell them to call me." <laughs> uh, but a, a perfect example of that. Uh, was uh, you know quite a long for quite a long time now we've had statewide um, guidelines for child support. This has been true since uh, the late '80s, no later than that, and um, early '90s at the most. And it has to be re-examined uh, every couple of years to look at economics and family finance and so on. So there's a there's a committee that's the the, the child support guidelines committee. And in the course of re-examining those in the regular uh, regular time frame for business, the committee came came to the Supreme Court. Uh, I'll never forget it. Um, came to meet with the five members of the court and said, "We're we are finished with these uh, re uh, revised uh, support guidelines, but we have an idea that we think Indiana needs. These are tr all trial judges." We have an idea. We think Indiana needs something that has to do with what we used to call visitation. How do how does a parent who who is not the main custodial parent get to interact with his or her children? And and there there is no guideline on that. They said, and it's 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 very different from one place to the next. And we think we could create a visitation guideline if you're willing to consider adopting it. Uh, we're not going to do this if, if the five of you were opposed outright. But And you know, the five of us kind of nodded and said, yeah, that sounds plausible. Why don't you, why don't you do that? Well, uh, one of the things they did that I, I admired was they changed the word. It used to be visitation. And you'd occasionally hear a, usually a father who was the non-custodial parent, not always, You'd occasionally hear a father say, what do you mean I get to visit my children? They're my children. I'm supposed to be take, helping taking care of them. So they, what, they changed the word. They're now called parenting guidelines. That's what, that's what these encounters are supposed to be about. And um, so we adopted them. And now both the, the support guidelines and the parenting guidelines are at use in every courthouse in Indiana every day. And, and that's... Uh, if if you let people know that you're open to reform, sometimes they walk in the door and hand it to you. What what do you see as some of uh, the most significant issues the Indiana courts and the legal field you know face today? I think we continue to um, have r uh, real issues on um, finance. 
one of the things that has happened over time is that uh, the that the cost of courts has been um, financed so much by filing fees. So if you walk in the door and you want to file a, a a claim for for debt or um, or an eviction or um, a dissolution of marriage, that number has gone up quite a bit. Now, um, both the legislature and the counties, of course, the counties are uh, each county one at a time gets to make its own decisions about budget, and I don't blame them for uh, for being tough with uh, all the people who are there uh, uh, asking for money. There are a lot of other elements of county government that uh, that need to be sustained. Um, uh, mo in most states, the courts, I, I'm not sure, yeah, I think it's a majority, in a not a huge majority of states, the court system is financed through the state budget. And um, in Indiana, a lot of the expenses uh, like bailiffs and uh, court reporters and uh, probation officers are financed uh, uh, at the local level. Now that it hasn't been the end of the world, um, I think it's gotten better. You know, it's gotten better over time. One of the things that has changed, thank goodness, is that we're not always at the legislature asking for for pay raises, which used to be something I thought about almost every day when I'd walk in the walk in the state house to go to work. Um, that reform, which uh, began during the, the the major part of that, began during the administration of Mitch Daniels has finally sort of taken that off uh, off the table. It's, But the money and the finances that help run the courts is still a matter of uh, difficulty. And if you, get a, if you get a new idea or a new program you'd like, um, you've you got to do a fair amount of searching on how you're going to get uh, either, either, either from fees or from income tax dollars or property tax dollars most of the time. So I think that's a, an ongoing, I'm not sure I would call it a crisis, but it's an ongoing restraint on the opportunity to improve the court system um, statewide. Uh, the Indiana Supreme Court's newest member, Justice Derek Moulter, is, is just 40 years old. You were 38 when you joined the bench. Um, does the age of a justice bear any significance? I think it does. Um, you know, when I when I uh, came to the court, there was only one other person. Uh, three of the other four were the same age as my parents, and, um, <laughs> and that went well enough. But it was a little unusual. To I'm sure they I'm sure they had worries about whether this kid was uh, actually up to the job, and uh, hard to blame them for that. But um, people of different ages at different moments have different sources of information, different sets of experience. And everything about Derek Mulder suggests that he's just going to be a super member of the Indiana Supreme Court. He and I were, he and I had offices next door to, uh, uh, for a while when he was a member of the Indiana Court of Appeals. So we would uh, occasionally chat about law or just say, say hello, what are you doing today? And uh, I think there's a lot of reason um, for um, very uh, the 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 expectation of a terrific career of uh, adding value to the state of Indiana. I think he's he's uh, he's the real item. Obviously, you could fully retire at any time. Um, why have you decided to stay involved with the courts? Do you have any specific milestones that you you want to hit before stepping away? 
Well, they do have a rule there that uh, at the Court of Appeals, I think you uh, you can't do it t- uh, after you turn eighty. Okay. And we've we've lost some real talent here recently. Uh, people who finally aged, aged out, uh, regret regrettably. Um, but um, I, 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 it's something I've ended up doing my most of my adult life. Um, I think it adds social value. I mean, uh, the, you had you had to believe that in order to to work in the system that long. That this is important for the future of Indiana, uh, having a good trial court system, a good appeals system, and so it gives me a a chance part time to contrib- contribute to that. And there's a certain amount of discipline that's probably good for me. Uh, go down, and I know there are a couple of things I need to get done this afternoon. <laughs> And I, I promise I will. Um, uh, so that's uh, and of course you get to uh, you get to work with uh, such able people. I work not just with other senior judges, but with uh, regular uh, sitting judges, full time judges. And um, I have a small office in the uh, PNC Center downtown. It has two. It's it's, it's uh, has two special advantages. One is it's right across the hall from the copy room. Um, and the other is that it's right down the hall from the technology experts. So when, <laughs> when I when I get in over my head, which uh, happens uh, on some regular basis, uh, I got, there are people there to bail me out. Is there anything um, that you just like lawyers and or judges to just know about you? I guess I try my best to be a, a listener, somebody who's on the lookout for useful ideas um, useful projects, things that can help create a more just society and, uh, and try to give time to those whenever I can. And I, I, I think and I believe happily that Indiana has plenty of people who approach uh, their legal work, whether they're lawyers or judges, in the same way. That will wrap up this week's episode. Thanks again to Justice Randall Shepard for joining us today. As always, you can catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast by visiting theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service.